I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi, I'm Derek O'Reilly, and for over 30 years, I've been a licensed London taxi driver. For 20 years, I taught the knowledge to prospective London cab drivers. During this podcast, I'm going to be joined by experts who are going to bring the forgotten and secret history of London to life. Today, I'm going to be joined by an old friend, very knowledgeable person who we have regular chats with about the history of London. Um, And today I thought we'd discuss prisons, the judiciary and the punishments meted out. Hello, I'm David Charnick. I guide extensively in Tower Hamlets, the original East End, but I'm also a qualified City of London guide and I teach tour guiding through the London Borough of Tower Hamlets. Hello, David. Hello again, Derek. Good to see you again. As always. Now, sir, um, I thought what we'd do today, we'd have a little chat. We've, we've met many times and mm. we've had interesting conversations and you've always enlightened me with some information. I'll do my best. Uh, let's talk about judiciary and punishment mm. for crimes committed. Let's try and stick within the London area, but I suppose oh, inevitably we'll, we'll move outside. So prisons. Let's, let's mm. start off with prisons. Now, obviously, the main prison or the one that's historically famous is Newgate mm. Jail. Yeah. Newgate Jail, as the name suggests, actually started in the gatehouse at the end of Newgate Street, one of the gatehouses in the city wall. We don't know when it started. It certainly had prisoners by the 1180s, but it's believed not to be quite as old as the clink on the other side, which dated back to the 1120s. But Newgate developed, it became notorious. Like all the prisons at the time, it was run as a private Enterprise, you know, it wasn't a government thing at all. And there are all these stories of the maltreatment of prisoners and stuff like that. And some of the governors actually ended up as prisoners as well um, (laughs) because of mistreating, you know, the inmates and so on. Uh, yeah, so it was it was quite notorious, and mainly, of course, because its association with hanging. Yes, there, would there, you said some of the governors ended up side for them for their mistreatment of the prisoners. Mm. So, was, would there have been sort of a, an authority that oversaw prison behaviour and prison conditions? No, only the law. Um, if you could bring evidence against someone, uh, then that would be uh, accepted. Right. But, okay. No, there was no governing body, as it were. No. Um, so, essentially, the the prisons had a free hand. Right. Um, and the executions, were they always carried out outside Newgate or were they always transferred up to Tyburn? 
Well, the condemned that were held at Newgate didn't always go to Tyburn. Sometimes they went to Smithfield, for instance. But it was mainly the the journey to Tyburn that's the one that sticks most right, yeah, in people's mind. Most about, yeah, 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 that's right. So you put the prisoners in the carts and you wheel them along from uh, Newgate Jail on Old Bailey uh, through along what's now Oxford Street to Tyburn, right. which originally was just a little village by the River Tyburn. But it had a big gallows there. Yeah, now it become infinitely famous, I suppose. Mm. Now, um, moving on for then, tell me about the early sort of judiciary practice. What would have happened? I would have been gone, committed a crime, yeah. or maybe even not committed a crime, mm. and been brought before the beak or the magistrate. Yeah. What would the process have been at that point? Right. Um, if you commit a crime which well, not entitles you, but um, for want of a better word, entitles you to trial by jury. You have to be committed for trial first by a magistrate, and then your case goes before a court. I have to say, I'm not exactly sure how far back that process goes. Right, okay. But the, the main thing about the trial is, first of all, you're asked to confirm your name and identity, you know, uh, but then you're faced with the charges against you, and you have to enter a plea. Are you guilty or not guilty? And then right, you have to yeah. say. Now, as you may know, there are some people who will say, oh, I don't accept the authority of this court over yeah, me. Yeah, you know. that. Yeah, uh, so they won't plead. And so what happens nowadays is that a plea is entered on your behalf of not guilty, and that allows the case to continue, the hearing to continue. But right. it wasn't always so. Oh, Going back more. to the Middle Ages, and this gives us a connection with Newgate, as you say, uh, the press room. Uh, I'll explain that in a minute. Nothing to do with journalism okay. <laughs> uh, or indeed cider. But um, what would happen is people up on a capital charge where they could be hanged, um, whether or not they were guilty, they might be afraid of what might happen after they were executed to their property. If they were married, if they had a family, uh, their property was liable to be seized by the crown. So you could be leaving your widow and children destitute depending on what king it is and uh, what they were likely to do. So you would refuse to enter a plea. And in those days, I mean, it, it sounds silly, but it's one of those ideas that it's only once someone's had it, you think we should have had that before. They didn't have the idea of entering a plea. What they would do is try and force you to enter a plea. So in 1275, you get the interestingly named Standing Mute Act, because <laughs> you would stand mute in the dock. You wouldn't say anything. And that authorised the use of pain fort et dure. So that's uh, harsh and enduring punishment. And what they did is they'd lock you in a cell and basically starve you. You'd be given little bits of food, little bits of bread, bits of water, probably not totally fresh water, to keep you going, because they didn't want you to die, but they wanted to force you to enter a plea. Right, and obviously the plea could be guilty or not guilty, it just had to be a plea. That's correct, yeah. Right, okay. Um Yeah, when you're guilty, obviously the, the, there would be no need for a trial, because you've pleaded guilty. Yes. Uh, but the, um, the plea would be usually not guilty, and allowing the uh, trial to carry on. But the thing was, so many men were still holding out and they were literally starving themselves to death rather than enter a plea and as a result in 1426 you get pressing 
the introduction of the press yard or the press room. Then there was one at Newgate. So from 1783, when they started hanging people outside the jail, uh, you'll be taken to the press room first, and that's where the leather straps would be tied, uh, well, fastened around your arms to make sure you couldn't use your arms to make a getaway. Uh, But that press room had four iron rings set into the ground. And if you refused to enter a plea, you'd be taken in there, laid on the ground, spread-eagled, and your wrists and ankles would be attached by ropes to these rings, and you'd be sort of stretched out taut, and you left there for a while so a few cramps could gather. And then they'd come in and say, are you ready to plea now? And you said, no, no, oh, okay then. And they'd put a board on you, a heavy board. They'd go away, come back, and they'd keep asking you and uh, keep giving you bits of bread, bits of water to keep you going. And uh, if you still said no, they start putting weights on you. And that would literally press you. And so after a while, you couldn't breathe anymore because your ribs couldn't move. Uh, and that was intended to force you to enter a plea. But even then, men would hang out and would literally get pressed to death. So presumably then, if you did die without entering a plea, Mm. it was deemed not guilty? You wouldn't have been tried, so yeah. So Um, so your family would be safe. They would not risk losing their property. I wonder if that's where pressing me for an answer comes from. It could possibly be. Yeah, you never know. It could be, I never thought of that. Okay, so let's move on from Newgate. We've discussed it. Uh, several times in the past, but still mm. a fascinating place. Obviously, now the old Bailey Central Criminal Court. That's right. Um, so let's move on to some other prisons that I've heard of. Mm-hmm. Now, opposite Mount Pleasant yeah. Post Office is a little square called Cold Bath Square, mm-hmm. just off of Farringdon Road there. Yeah. I believe at one time that was an infamous prison. Cold Bath Fields Prison, yeah. Yeah, that um, has had various people in there over time. Uh, possibly the most interesting uh, of which, or of whom, was John Williams, who uh, was involved in the story of the Ratcliffe Highway murders of December 1811. Yeah, please tell me more. Well, until the Ripper killings of 1888, the Ratcliffe Highway murders were the big killings, because two families were killed in December 1811. They are unsolved murders, even today, and motiveless I mean, you you can assign motives to the Ripper killings, um, you know, getting down on prostitutes or women in general, that kind of thing. But there was no motive discernible between the killings of the Ma family and the Williamson family down on Ratcliffe Highway in Shadwell, just along from the Church of St George in the East. Yes, yeah. So what happened was a load of men were arrested for questioning. But John Williams, he was the only one who was found dead in his cell. Now, he had been a merchant sailor, but he was ashore at the time between ships and he was lodging at the Pear Tree Inn. And he, as I say, was found dead. It's usually accepted he committed suicide, but there is a school of thought that he was killed. But the important thing was he was dead, so he couldn't defend himself. And he was useful for the authorities to calm people down. Because you can imagine everyone... This is before the creation of the police. Yeah. So everyone's sort of, oh, well, what's going to happen Let's next? Let's just get some geographical sense mm-hmm. on this. So yeah. the Pear Tree Inn was located yeah. where? The Pear Tree Inn yeah. was located down near um, 
Wapping Ward. You know where the prospect of Whitby yes, Pub is? Yes, Just yeah. down there. There's a big red bridge that gives you access to the Shadwell Basin okay, on the right. eastern side of the London docks. Okay, so that's where he was staying. It was around there. There's a little lane there called Pear Tree Lane right. that's named after it in a, a sort of more yeah. recent development. So he was staying around there. The victims were killed, the two families. One of them, the Ma family, the first ones who were killed on the 7th of December, which was a Saturday, they were killed at home at 29 Ratcliffe Highway. So that's a little bit to the west of St George in the East Church. Which is now the road we know as the highway, which takes you out towards the Limehouse Tunnel. That's right. Mm -hmm. And the Williamsons, they ran the King's Arms pub which used to be on New Gravel Lane, which is now Garnet Street. Right, OK. And, uh, but that's no longer there either. Um, 29 Ratcliffe Highway has long since been demolished, but so has the pub, because in the 1830s they extended the warehousing around the London docks, so they demolished all the buildings on that side of the street, including the pub. Mm. So that's where they were. And uh, the Williamsons are buried in St Paul's Shadwell Churchyard, and the Mars are buried at St George in the East. So, coming back to poor old John Williams, as I say, he was dead, and so he could be used as a kind of scapegoat. So they brought the body back to Shadwell, and they put it on a cart, on a platform in the back of a cart, and they surrounded it with the murder weapons, and they took it on a progress past the Pear Tree Inn, past the King's Arms pub, where the Williamsons were killed, past 29 Ratcliffe Highway, where the Mars were killed, um, and then to the crossroads where what's now Cannon Street Road crosses Cable Street. And they tumbled the body into this hole about four foot deep, and they drove an iron stake through its heart. And there it remained until the early 20th century. We don't know the exact year, but there were roadworks being done there, and they unearthed his skeleton. Ah, what an incredible story. Yeah. And the landlord of the nearby pub, the Crown and Dolphin, he got the skull. Wow. For yeah, because the Crown and Dolphin's gone now. But um, I, as I told yeah. you before many times, I live not far from there. So, mm. wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So, there you are. Yeah. Oh, take me back a bit there now. <laughs> right, so let's move on from, um, from there. Now, mm. another prison. Um, that I sort of I know there's a bit of it left. Mm. Um, Marshalsea Prison. It was known as the Marshalsea Debtors Prison. I believe Dickens spent some time there, or certainly his father did. What his father did, that? yeah. Um, in February 1824, so about a fortnight after Charles Dickens's twelfth birthday, his father was imprisoned in the Marshalsea for debt. So imprisonment for debt, basically, you owed more money than you could hope to repay, and therefore you were a flight risk. Bit like today, <laughs> yeah. But today we have bankruptcy. Yes, it's much, well. They had bankruptcy then, but it was more difficult to get to it. Um, so you were a flight risk, and so your creditors, the people to whom you owed the money, they would arrange for you to be arrested, so you didn't flee the country. And what would happen is, I mean, often in these prisons you could continue to ply your trade. Uh, some of them were more like open prisons today. Uh, But also you would lean on your family and your friends, particularly your family. You know, it's not good for the family name to have me stuck in here. And in fact, uh, John Dickens, Charles Dickens' father, his mum died. So he inherited money and he could clear his debts. Uh Ah, right. So the debtors dominated the Marshall Sea. And as you say, the, the southern perimeter wall is still there, although you can see by the brickwork that it's been repaired over time. Yes. Uh, that's all that's left. So the the prison was on the north side of the churchyard there of St George the Martyr. Uh, 
And it was mainly debtors, but not exclusively. You also had um, people arrested for crimes at sea, mainly pirates. They were held there too. Um, And the pirates, if found guilty, which usually they would be, uh, that's where they were taken from. And they would be taken across London Bridge and then downriver to Wapping to be hanged at Execution Dock. Right, fascinating history, isn't it, London? It just <laughs> so the, it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah, and uh, and that was uh, what they call a temporary gallows. So you could erect it and then take it down again uh, just on the river. So at low tide, when you've got a lot of the river bank exposed, they would take the gallows down there, erect it, and hang the pirates. And some of them would be uh, usually uh, tarred or something and left up hanging as a warning. Ah, yeah, to other people, yeah. I know the town of Ramsgate pub claims that that's where the execution dock is or was. Yeah, Um, we don't rightly know. I mean, town of Ramsgate, uh, as you may know, out the back of the prospect of Whitby, they've got a noose (laughs) (laughs) to commemorate execution dock. Um, But But obviously it was along that stretch of river. That's that's Yeah, it's a a movable feast, as it were. The thing was, it was a temporary gallows, so you could erect it at a convenient spot. So it's quite possible there was no actual literal spot that they just put it where it was convenient at the time. Yeah. Now, obviously, um, crime and punishment wasn't Mm. just committed or wasn't just for men. Um, Unfortunately, uh, women also committed crimes. And I've driven past Holloway Prison, although it's just recently been closed now many, many times. Yeah. And I know that that had um, one infamous and tragic uh, execution taking place in there, amongst many others, of course. Mm. Um, I believe the last woman to be hanged in this country was executed there. Okay, yes, uh, Ruth Ellis, she was hanged in July 1955 at Holloway for murdering, shooting to death, her boyfriend, uh, David Blakely, who was a racing driver. And the thing was, they were both involved in other relationships, and uh, but... Um, it was a complicated domestic situation, shall we say. And Blakely was, I mean, he was a racing driver, so presumably he had a bit of a, an edgy temper anyway, but they, they, they had fights and stuff. And at one point, Ellis decided she'd had enough. And she went armed to the Magdala pub which is where he used to hang out, uh, a fellow... Yeah, I know it's in Hampstead, yeah. That's right. Um, a fellow uh, racing driver tipped her off about this, where you know, and so she went down there, and as he came out, she shot him. And he... The first bullet went wide, as I understand, and he'd... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. ...ran off down the road, but she managed to wing him and brought him down and then stood over him and shot another couple of shots into his body. Uh, she discharged, I think, five shots overall, and then um, <clears throat> the sixth shot actually missed, and it hit the pavement and shot out and hit a bystander in the right hand. Oh, I wasn't and, aware uh, of that. Yeah, they, I think they lost the use of their hand. They certainly had to be hospitalised for a while. Mm. So, I mean, she admitted it. I mean, well, well, she had to, yeah, obviously, yeah, but yeah. I mean, she had admitted responsibility and <clears throat> she wanted nothing to do with any campaigns. That was the thing, because there was a big campaign, because it was a, a cream passionelle, a crime of passion, yeah. but British law doesn't recognise that. But people at the time were saying, you know, well, it was, the way she was treated, you know, that should be taken into account. Well, diminished responsibility would get away with now, wouldn't it? Exactly, yeah. yes. But um, she didn't want any of that. She said, no, it's nothing to do with that. I just killed him, you know. Mm. So, yeah, so she was hanged. And uh, there has been pressure brought to bear to issue a posthumous pardon. But as far as I know, it's not really got anywhere. No, no, mm. not as I'm aware to date. And, of course, there was, although it's uh, in my sort of time, it was a woman's prison. I know that mm. um, Oswald Mosley, the wartime <laughs> fascist leader, and his wife were imprisoned in there briefly. That's right, yeah. Um, in 1940, the, the British Union of Fascists, which was Mosley's uh, party, uh, that was proscribed under Defence of the Realm regulations. In other words, it was declared illegal. And Mosley and fellow fascists were imprisoned. Now, Mosley and his wife, Diana Mitford, they were allowed to leave prison under house arrest on compassionate grounds. I'm not sure what compassion you could afford him, but that was what was done. Uh, the only thing, of course, that the house in question was his country house. So he was uh, living it high, as it were, in splendid solitude with his wife in the country house while his fellow fascists were lingering in various London prisons. Oh, dear. Yeah, <laughs> as always. So let's move on from... Um, should I just have a short stroll down the road to Pentonville Prison? Um, now... My knowledge training centre was across the road from the prison, so oh, right. I came a little bit aware of the history that, um, you know, about that prison. Uh -huh. um, I know that, for example, during the war, uh, a few German spies were executed in there, mm -hmm. um, and I think um, Sir Roger McCasement, um, one of the leaders, the Irish Sinn Féin leaders, was also executed there. Yeah. 
and I believe his body or his remains were returned to Ireland in 1966. Mm -hmm. um, the prison itself, from what I was led to believe, was supposed to be a silent prison um, whereby people weren't supposed to communicate with each other. They were just meant to consider what their wrongs were and mm -hmm. hopefully come out, if you were released, a better person. Mm -hmm. um, again, um, the prison itself is quite shabby now, so I'm not certain how long <laughs> that will be there. Mm. Um, another prison that always interested me was Wormwood Scrubs. Yeah, over on the west side of yeah, London. Yeah, what do we know about the Scrubs? Mm. Well, a bog-standard prison, I suppose you could say. But um, for me personally, the most interesting story is what it was used for in the Second World War, which was to house MI5, the security service. Well, inside a prison? Yep. Um, they were moved away from uh, King Charles Street. It's King Charles II Street now, just off of Haymarket. Uh, and they were moved out to Wormwood Scrubs so they could be out of the centre. Uh, but not for very long, because the locals noticed that all these people were going in there and coming out again. Yeah, and you don't do that when you're in prison. prison. <laughs> no, that's right. You don't get a few hours worth of sentence. You, right. know, you get months and years and stuff. So it became obvious. So they had to move out. So they were moved to Blenheim Palace in Oxfordshire. Ah, uh, okay. More sensible. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. The, the Churchill family seat. And I know that George Blake, the spy, he escaped from Wormwood Scrubs. Um, apart from that, I don't really know much else about that prison, to be honest with uh -huh, you. Yeah. Oh, it's a location, of course. Um, it's called Wormwood Scrubs because that's exactly where it is, mm. by the side of East Acton Station there. Yeah. So let's move south. Um, uh -huh. All districts all seem to have their prisons. Let's talk about Wandsworth mm. Prison. Ah, Wandsworth, yeah. That's where you get, um, well, two interesting stories, really, but you get the execution of Derek Bentley. Oh, yes, I've heard of that. Uh, Derek Bentley's ex conviction and execution is one of the uh, greatest miscarriages of justice of the 20th century. Uh, he was only 19 at the time, and he'd fallen in with a younger man, a rather more criminal young man called Chris Craig, who was 16 at the time of the arrest. And uh, Derek Bentley was... Um, we'd say had learning difficulties, you know, mental issues, uh, easily swayed, as it were. And they were robbing a warehouse in Croydon, in, in South London, in uh, November 1952, and someone called the police. And the police turned up, and Bentley, Derek Bentley, he had a knuckle duster, one of those frames you put around your fingers for fighting, but that's all. But Chris Craig had a gun. And so when the police arrived, Chris Craig pulled his gun out and he actually shot one policeman dead and wounded another one. Um, now, the controversy was that Chris Craig was only 16. So he was um, obviously guilty, but he couldn't be hanged. And the judge in the case, he was out for an execution. So Derek Bentley was brought in under joint enterprise, which is where if you don't commit the crime but you're part of the gang and you know what's going on, you're equally culpable. And Derek was 19, so he was old enough to be hanged. So when Chris Craig produced his gun in the warehouse, one of the policemen said, you know, you know, don't be a fool, boy, hand it over. And Derek Bentley famously or infamously said, let him have it, Chris. And yeah, most likely, the gun over. yeah, most likely give him the gun. But of course, it has a secondary meaning, let him have it. In other words, shoot him. Yeah. Because that's what Chris Craig did. 
And so it was argued that that's what it meant. Right. And there was all sorts of arguments put up against conviction by the defence, um, especially the fact that Chris Craig had a pistol that was uh, it was loaded with all different types of bullets. Some of the bullets were too small for the gun, and so he'd adapted them by hand to fit the chambers, which meant that when they were shot, they didn't uh, touch the rifling in the barrel. You know, a gun barrel's rifled. You've got these spiral grooves inside, and they twist the bullet as it comes out, which gives it the accuracy. So some of these bullets were just firing wild. Um, Anyway, the point is that the judge summed up dead set against Derek Bentley, which was basically misleading the jury. Yeah, it's happened in the past. Yeah, because as you know, the jury is the decider of fact. It's the jury that decides whether you're innocent or guilty. And the judge is only there to point out the the salient legal points. But anyway, uh, Derek was convicted and sentenced to hang, and there was a, a campaign to get the Home Secretary to overturn the judgment, which the Home Secretary wasn't uh, keen to do. And so Derek was hanged. And so his sister carried on campaigning. And it wasn't till the 90s that, first of all, a pardon was pronounced and then subsequently the conviction overturned. Okay. Any other stories you got for me from inside Wandsworth before we move on? Well, um, a curious story. Uh, it, it's it's curious, but also sad. Um, in 1961, Reggie Cray was doing 18 months in Wandsworth for demanding money with menaces. And that's when he decided that he was in love with Frances Shea. Now, th- this was uh, Reggie Cray's first wife, who famously committed suicide. And... Um, Ronnie and Reggie, both Cray twins, they knew the Shea family because they ran a, a club in Stoke Newington that the twins had an interest in it. Okay. Um, so he knew Francis Shea already, but he decided he was in love with her and he started sending her love letters and love poetry. Although what his taste in love poetry was, yeah. who knows? Um, and when he got out, he proposed to her. And at first she said, I'm, you know, I'm only 16, I'm too young to get married now. And he actually backed off. Uh, but he came back later and, uh, and they got married in 1965 at, at the Red Church, the St. Church of St. James the Great on Bethnal Green Road. Oh, yes, yeah. Which is yeah. flats now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah go on. Then so they got married there and you had Rolls-Royces double parked along Bethnal Green Road and uh, David Bailey, the fashionable photographer of the time, he took the wedding photos. You can find them online and so on. Yeah, so quite an occasion. Spoiled only for Reggie by Elsie Shea, Francis's mum, because she turned up with a black dress on. Yeah, she which you don't do at a wedding. Married, yeah. <laughs> he never forgave yeah. her for that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's where the story, the ultimately rather tragic story of Francis Shea and Reggie Cray began, uh, with Reggie sitting in his cell at Wandsworth. Oh. Now, let's, so we move on from Wandsworth. My head's sort of moving all around London all yeah. the time. <laughs> um, now I know that the Tower of London was occasionally used as a prison, even in more recent times. Well, uh, for a start, it takes us back to the craze because uh, during their national service, they had inherited the resistance to discipline that their father had because their father, uh, he deserted from the army 
during the Second World War, not because he was a coward, but he couldn't do with all this being told what to do business. And that's what happened with Ronnie and Reggie. They did about a day of uh, national service and they said, oh, we're not having this stuff. We're going home to mum. And so they did. They came back to Bethnal Green to 178 Valance Road. And that's where the military police caught them. (laughs) So they were in the Tower of London for a little while. They were, I think they were the last prisoners to be held there. Yeah, they were. I know that uh, we talked about Sir Roger McCasement earlier on, the yeah. Sinn Féin leader. Um, he was briefly held there before he was taken to Pentonville Prison. And mm. I know they used it as a holding place for yeah. German spies who were caught in the First World War and the Second World War. Mm-hmm. So that also served its purpose as a jail for a period of time. Yeah. Now, we talked briefly about clemency. Mm-hmm. Um, were there any ways or means of the wealthy or other people escaping punishment? Well, there were ways round it. I mean, you have to remember that um, the death sentence was quite prevalent, but it was a problem. The authorities didn't like the death sentence, and if possible, they'd try and get round it. You know, judges would often be amenable to a plea for mercy on behalf of the jury, or indeed, the uh, the defence counsel might represent. You know, uh, my client clearly had problems with this, that, and the other, that sort of thing. Uh, the trouble was, though, it it hung in the balance with the Home Secretary. But one interesting way of avoiding the death sentence was the um, to plead benefit of clergy. Oh, tell me about this. <laughs> this is a fascinating thing, which again takes us back to the Middle Ages, and. Benefit of clergy was a reference, really, to the time in the Middle Ages when you had the church all around you, all these religious communities, that sort of thing, as well as priests. And they had their own ecclesiastical courts and their own legal system, canon law. And if you could prove that you were of the church, then you would be handed over to an ecclesiastical court, which wouldn't execute you, basically. But... The, the way it worked was you had to read out a bit of the Bible to show that you could read, because it was largely the church people who could read in those days. So as time went on, it sort of got a bit debased. So basically, anyone who could read, um, if they were up on a charge which would lead to hanging, uh, usually this was used for murder, uh, benefit of clergy, uh, you could say, oh, I can read. I plead benefit of clergy. So presumably, because you could read, they pres- they thought you were a member of the clergy. That's correct. Yep. All oh, right. And uh, it was the thing was, it was the same bit of the Bible every time. It was <laughs> Psalm fifty-one, verse three, uh, which says, "Have mercy on me, God, according to your your mercy, your forgiveness." And so people would learn it. Illiterate people would learn the verse. So when the Bible was put in front of them, they they could be looking anywhere on the page. They didn't know where it was. And they'd just say, oh, yes, and they'd read it out. So it became known as the neck verse because it spared your neck. And a very, very very interesting way of avoiding punishment. Well, it lingered until the 1820s. Um, 1825 is when it was on the way out, officially uh, abandoned in 1827. But the most interesting person to plead benefit of clergy, well, for me anyway, because I'm a literary type, it was Ben Jonson, the okay. poet and playwright. In 1598, he had a duel in September 1598 with Gabriel Spencer, who was an actor, at Hoxton Fields, which is now Hoxton Square. And he killed Spencer in the duel. So he was up on a charge of murder. And so he was sentenced to hang. 
So he pleaded benefit of clergy and he read the next verse. So he didn't hang. But what they would do is brand you. You'd get the old red hot iron and they'd brand you on the thumb. Because benefit of clergy was a one-time use, as it were. It was your get-out-of-jail-free oh, card. You couldn't it. Right. do it again. You only had one one chance. So they'd check your thumb, presumably. Yep, they would brand your thumb, M for murder, and that meant that... Because it was a permanent mark, branding. Yeah, yeah. And so they said, have a look at your thumb. Oh, sorry, mate. You can't, you can't <laughs> do it again. Uh, and then you would swing if you were convicted. So, yeah, but... Um, yeah, poor old Gabriel Spencer. Yeah. We still don't know what the row was about. <laughs> it's just had some, no, sort of, I don't know, lovey kissy argument about the stage yeah. or something. On a and the, well, I suppose less, yeah. less cheery note than that. Um, the last executions, last people to be executed, um, they weren't in London, were they? No. They were executed, one of them in Liverpool and one of them in Manchester. This was for a robbery committed on a man called John West. And we're talking now about 1964. Right. And there were two men. Uh, one of them was called Peter Allen, and one of them was called Gwyn Evans. And Gwyn Evans was executed in Strangeways Prison in Manchester, and uh, the other fellow, uh, Allen, he was executed in Liverpool. Right. And uh, so that's 1964. So there was the there were the last hangings, and it didn't really get any publicity because they'd just broken into this man West's home. And they killed him in the course of the robbery. They only got away with £10. You know, it was a really small case. Uh, but at that time, the pressure was building to get rid of the death penalty. Yeah, so, I suppose the Bentley case and Ruth Ellis and all these other sort of cases probably uh, heightened public opinion against the death penalty. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And the thing about the death penalty is you can't go back on it. No, no. You know, once, once someone's executed, you That's can't it, bring them yeah. back. So when was it... Um, formally abolished? It was... Formally, it was abolished in 1969. So quite recently in, in real terms. Oh, yeah. Well, I like to think so, because I was five at the time. I don't, I don't like <laughs> to think I'm that old. But um, it was, for want of a better word, suspended in 1965. Uh, and then that was made permanent in 69. Right, yeah. OK. Well, David, it's been interesting to have a little stroll around some of our um, less salubrious places in London, our prisons <laughs> and our jails. Obviously, we know more about some than we do others, and yeah. some have become famous for, for, for probably, I suppose you could say, the wrong reasons. Mm. Um, but no, always interesting talking to you, David. Thank you very much indeed. Well, thanks for sharing some of the darker moments in London's history with me, Derek. Thank you. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.